I'ma say what I feel And I promise to keep it real Welcome to the Red Room Diminishing the doubts are behind ya It's hard to grind in the business Got me stressed in the rent room We let that shit up off our chest You know the street nerd has got no time for no kata Sass in class, yes that's Mr. Bolakaja Never have to guess when you're listening to Hilliard He gon' bring more game than a shark playing billiards It's all about the crap of screenwriting It's exciting when you turn an outline into something enlightening Your pen and words are like bullets in a gun Write what you feel, say what you want Welcome to the rent room Hello, and we're back with another bottle episode for the Screenwriter's Rant Room. I appreciate everyone who has uh, tweeted at me and let me know or has written in to Hilliard and let him know how much you appreciate these. I appreciate doing these. I'm always curious to know who is listening, um, and it's great to hear people are excited about this format. It's going away for a while, because um, we'll be back to the regular format with the next episode. Uh, we're going to be uh, doing an interview next week with someone who's who has a great uh, idea about the reason that you should never shoot a short film. You should just go straight into shooting a feature. Uh, I'm curious to talk to her about that. I think maybe it's easier to do now because of the technology, but I don't know if if there's enough about that. But anyway, I'm getting premature. Let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. Um, Well, let's talk about movies because it's, you know, it's movie season right now. Uh, I saw a lot of movies in the last week since we last were here. I saw Knives Out, which just today, double thumbs up, great movie from Ryan Johnson, who, if you remember, did uh, The Last Jedi, but before that did Looper, and then did the amazing film uh, Brick before that, and then he did a little film called, uh, I forget the other film he did, in between Brick and Looper, um, Someone should look it up. My mind's some some weird caper movie, um, but that movie's awesome. I saw The Good Liar, great film with Helen Mirren and with Ian McKellen. It's interesting seeing these older actors, as ones who are so seasoned, get to play these parts, get to play these delicious type of films, and be the center of films. You know, when other actors got old of previous ages, they got relegated to doing. TV movies and you know things like that like you know if you go back and look at movies from TV movies from the 60s and 70s you'll see all these great Hollywood stars from the 40 the 30s 40s and 50s had to start doing that stuff because they just weren't writing roles for these older great actors the way they are now and you know I'm not saying there's a lot of those but I think people like Ian McKellen and, and Helen Mirren definitely demand uh that the screenwriters they write stuff because they know there's this great cast of people and the, the the audience is there. There is a huge audience of of older actors, baby boomers and stuff, who will still go to the cinema. And that's why I thought the movie called uh, The Good Liar was it was good to see for anyone. Um, I saw Motherless Brooklyn, which was a film uh, starring, written and directed by Ed Norton. It's an interesting movie. It. Uh, I liked it a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. I halfway through it, I was thinking, oh, this movie could be like 
a modern day Chinatown or like a, or modern day uh, LA Confidential. And I don't think we've seen a film like that, uh, like of late, uh, set in New York. I mean, like I said, Chinatown and LA Confidential were set in LA. There's an interesting thing about city corruption that is, happens out here that, uh, it sure it happens everywhere, but I don't, can't, can't think of too many films set in New York that are about that. That's a, that are period pieces because Miller's Brooklyn is set in the 50s. The only thing is, um, it's not Chinatown, uh, and it's it, you know it, I think maybe under maybe a, another skilled director like a Curtis Hansen who sadly passed away a few years ago, uh, you know, and who did um, L.A. Confidential. Um, I feel that I think that Mother's Brooklyn could have been super strong. It's the best acting that Bruce Willis has done in probably a decade, and he's, in, he's got a small role. Um, it's sad to see how much he's just given up on uh, his profession. Um, and I say that because I like Edward Norton's role, but I kind of feel like he's not as comfortable directing and acting this the way that, say, someone like Mel Gibson is. Um, or Mel Gibson was because he's directed a film that he's acted in a long, long time. It's, the, well, it's probably one of the hardest things to do. You know, I mean, there's very few people who've successfully pulled it off. <clears throat> Mel Gibson did, you know, uh, with, with Braveheart, fantastic, fantastic movie. Um, so did Ben Affleck with The Town. Um, and I guess it with Argo too, uh, but uh, but Argo is more of a it's more of an ensemble than anything else. Um, so, but I really like Mother's Book. But the thing about it is, I realize is, and this is why why Chinatown is so special, and this is why everyone who is, I guess, throwing the bandwagon of that we can never watch Chinatown anymore because it's directed by Roman Polanski. Um, but but you know, he's a guy who I guess certain people might say, well, why do you give him a pass, Chris? I give him a, a pass as a filmmaker because I love his work. Um, and I also know that, you know, people's circumstances could make them different in certain ways. You know, there's all this Me Too stuff and we've seen and, and all this stuff is reprehensible. But I don't think there's anyone who was a perpetrator of the Me Too events as there was with uh, Roman Polanski. You know, he's, he's survived the Polish ghetto during World War II, um, you know, and he lived on the street, and he basically lived as, like, a feral child for, uh, you know, a substantial period of his of his upbringing. Like, the, time, the times in his life when he'd be taught, like, right and wrong, that was kind of shipped away from him. And there's a fantastic book called Wartime Lies that, uh, I forget who wrote it, but, um, but Stanley Kubrick was supposed to make it into a movie. It was going to be called The Aryan Papers, if anyone's really interested. Uh, there were some photographs of that and stills that he was of its pre-production at the Stanley Kubrick exhibit that was at the LA County Art Museum. I don't know, maybe like five or six, maybe even longer years ago now. But anyway, um, it's a fascinating book because it covers what it's like to, to live in wartime in that tragic, tragic era of the Polish ghetto, of the Jews that we saw in Schindler's List. But Schindler's List, like, you know, you know, like, those Jews who got rounded up were sent to the camps. But it, but Polanski's story is, is that uh, he didn't do that. He was living out, out, in the, out in just the wilderness. And this was kind of covered in wartime lies. This was one of the few, few books about World War II and surviving it from the point of view of, 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 of a Jewish child just a child in general and what it's like for war to hit a child. I mean, we've obviously seen movies like um, 
that Steven Spielberg film, Empire of the Sun, is one. This is a harrowing, harrowing film that I wish everyone would see. It's called Come and See. It's a Russian film. Uh, I forget the director's name. It's the movie that inspired a lot of Steven Spielberg's work in um, Saving Private Ryan. Uh, but Come and See is a strange... Is this a movie... The director... He'd also been a, like a veteran of World War II, Russian guy. And after he made the movie, he quit making movies. He was like, I can't p- do anything this more than this. And this was too painful to dredge up st- to dredge up stuff from my life that I lived through as a soldier during the war. But anyway, so I say Chinatown because Chinatown ends. It's a tragic fucking ending. And that kind of tragic ending is unavailable in Hollywood films, particularly today. The last film I can remember that has that kind of a tragic ending is Seven. And here we're talking about Seven and it's like 25 years later because that's such a a bold, stylistic, risky choice, super, super risky uh, on just every level. And I'll get back to why I'm putting that out as being super risky shortly. Um, And that's what makes Chinatown stay with you. You know, the movie's... 50 years old and you want to talk about it and still look at it as like this and everyone talks about it as a script and it's a fascinating script because it does something similar in Motherwell's Brooklyn is that Ed Norton just like Jake Giddies played by Jack Nicholson is in almost every scene almost every scene I mean in Mother's Brooklyn in Chinatown the whole movie is told from the point of view of Jake Giddies which is difficult to do if you just think about it as a writer, you, that the main character as a detective is in every scene. So this, the, so the 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 mystery unfolds for the audience the same way as the um, as the protagonist figures it out, and that's something that we might not necessarily see in most films that are detective films. So there's always some other point of view that you're going to pick up. And they even do that in Mothers of Brooklyn a few times. There's a, uh, some some other points of view, the stuff that you necessarily wouldn't see. Uh, but it, anyway, there's the tragedy of Chinatown is just simply amazing. Um, I mentioned Ford Ferrari. Ford Ferrari is a movie that everybody should see. It might be, so far, is my favorite Hollywood film of the year. I'm putting it up there with as as a bit of enjoyment factor as cinema uh, with Parasite. It's not the type of uh, hypercharged film in terms of like w- in terms of what it's saying that Parasite is saying is a piece of art. But for Ferrari is uh, is amazing. I think that everyone probably thinks they know what that movie's about, um, and they think they know how it's going to end. Um, and it doesn't end the way that it, it does not end the way that that you think it's going to end. And if you and if you know the story. Um, then maybe it won't be as surprising. But but I didn't know the story, um, which I love, and I find I find something fascinating like this, and I actually like the Le Mans stuff anyway. But the movie I heard from a friend of mine who's from Spain, the movie's called Le Mans '66 in in Europe because it makes more sense to do it that way. But that's a really fascinating film. It's so exciting. It's so exciting to see an act like actors of the caliber of Christian Bale and Matt Damon play opposite each other they're not playing antagonists they're playing guys in the same team but they're but the way that they make scenes work and interact in scenes is just a master class of how you can take a script and just elevate it just by what the actors can do um it's one of these things you know i've heard i heard the director named james mangold talk about uh 
uh, it's the thing that, that, that movies do that television can't do. And I say movies in terms of if you go to the theater, is, is like the camera, what we can do with cameras now to get so close. We, get, we can get so intimate with a camera. We can get, you know, within six inches. Uh, I mean, that's something that I experimented with on the film that I just did. I went and got these Cook lenses, these Cook Pancros lenses, these vintage lenses. Um, and I shot the whole movie, uh, pretty much, the, not the movie, but the web series on a 32 millimeter. Uh, because of you can focus so close, you can get within like six inches of someone's face. And that's interesting because you can't really get that close to people in real life to be that intimate with them and you and and you're and, and you're only intimate with someone that you love who's a lover of yours like that uh you know if you're gonna kiss them and if you're not that close then they're wondering why you're that close so but it's interesting that you can get that close with the movies to see then and you feel more than anything it's like it's like the you have to do more than just act at that point you got to be able to like to emanate feeling to the audience and and then that has such power when it's on a large screen when it's like the close-up of that nature really means something on a large screen Uh, i mean i was just you know i was just watching knives out and the the woman in there who her name is like anna amaris or something like that uh she was in blade runner she played joy in blade runner 2049 and or 2048 whatever it was 2049 um and you just you know seeing just it's not just that she's beautiful because she's beautiful but she has these eyes and she is, and Christian Bale has those eyes that you just kind of like get to invade their life and their soul through the eyes, through the lens that sharp. And that's really how you get it from the power of the movie being that close. Um, that's just something interesting that I was hearing that uh, that James Mangle was talking about. But it just makes me think about you know like what is important about movies that you know it seems to be getting ready to go away for people and I think that's why people don't enjoy them as much because they don't watch them in the cinema for all these reasons and mainly because it's too expensive Um, and speaking of something you have to see in the cinema the last film that I saw uh, was The Irishman um, Martin Scorsese's film which has has brought all this kind of hoopla because he claimed that um, that Marvel movies weren't cinema and you know, his, his big proponent on that is because they don't risk anything. And that's the one thing I noticed that was so amazing about these films that I saw was what they risked story-wise. What they're trying to do that is, you know, yes, these things are tested, and yes, but they're not so tested because, you know, a movie like The Irishman, he's not trying to appeal to, uh, you know, a, cert- a certain type of woman um, you know that quadrant of women who are or or over a certain a certain age. I mean, look, those I'm not saying that the move those those women won't enjoy the film, or you know certain like you know again like um, younger boys and younger girls. There's not testing for them. It's not trying to appeal to them. I'm saying they won't like it either, but it's just like it's not it's 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 not softened up so that they can enjoy it. Uh, but the Irishman is a fascinating movie. You know, it's three and a half hours long. Which I think people are always kind of complaining about. But when I, when I hear that, I, I kind of say, fuck you, because there's such a huge 
uh, uh, shift in the way people will consume entertainment with binging. I mean, I guarantee the same people who are complaining about a movie is going to be three and a half hours long are the ones who might binge watch a whole series in a weekend. And that's like 10 to 12 hours, you know, uh, or more. But, you know, they get deposit. But then again, if you watch the movie on Netflix, you get deposit too. But I think what you miss The Irishman is that, again, like I mentioned with Good Liar, you see these actors, you see Pacino, you see De Niro, you see Pesci, who hasn't been on the screen in 10 years, but De Niro and uh, Pacino have, but none of them have had roles this profound, this absorbing, this dangerous, this hurtful for the characters, this, uh, than what you see in this movie. Um, you know, people said, well, you know, he could have made it as a, as a movie, as a TV show. No, we couldn't just because of the way that the 40 minute, uh, the epi- the episodic structure of television is. And even if you're going to go, oh, you can make it an hour long. Yeah, you, make it, you can make it an hour long. You do can make it an hour, but you're building to end the end to an hour. You're building to that end point of the episodic end. So you're, you're kind of pushing everything to there. And that's a narrative momentum that, that Scorsese is not trying to be a slave to when he is making The Irishman. And that's what most filmmakers don't want to be a slave to. Because with a movie, you can make it as it, you, you know, there's no... There's no time limit. You know, it can't be too long and it can't be too short, but you can fit, but it can be, whatever it is, it can be within that thing. You know, an 88-minute 88, 88 movie can exist. A 125-minute movie can exist. You know, a movie that is, what, 200 and, 200 and uh, what was that, 210 minutes, 215 minutes with The Irishman. The Irishman is, is, you know, you might say, well, I've seen these, I've seen the gangster film. I've seen Scorsese do, you know, uh, Mean Streets. I've seen him do Goodfellas. I've seen him do, you know, Casino. Um, the thing is, is that, you know, this movie is based upon a book, and I think it kind of covers some, it got, because Jimmy Hoffa's in it, it adds some real-lifeness to it that most of the Scorsese films have not done, uh, except maybe Wolf of Wall Street. But um, it's interesting because there's, there's so much power in what he's able to do with this film because the actors are older. And it's about and it's a story about older gangsters. And I don't think that Scorsese and these guys could make this film younger, like playing older. They have to be older to make this. And it's a movie that I watch it. The last hour is devastating. Absolutely devastating for what it has to say about uh you know, what is usually happens in movies is, you know, is there an epiphany that changes someone's situation and changes the way that they look at themselves and the, the and the story they've been living in the movie, the life they've been living. The, you know, like what happens in The Irishman is, is, is just wow. Because it made me reflect on my own mortality. Um, you know, and maybe people who are in their, you know, 20s and 30s don't do this because of, you know, whatever. They, they got so much time still in front of them. Uh, but when you hit your 40s, you don't necessarily, uh, and you're someone like me who, who's made a series of bad choices over the last 10, 12 years, the terrible choices uh, in life. Um, and it's interesting to see a movie that 
you know, pushes those kind of buttons in someone. Um, I, I, I can only hazard what it is with someone who's, you know, older, who's closer to what the age of the characters are in that movie. Um, and it's just, it just, you know, when I walked out of it, I was, I was, a, I was a little numb, uh, not because I didn't like the story, but because it's just, it's such, uh, it's such an aggressive impact on what it's trying to do. You know, just, I was watching the movie and like, and, uh, you know, and, um, uh, Anna Paquin is in it. She has a really fascinating role, just a fascinating role. Um, and I was watching the movie, and I was certain my, a, certain, a certain amount in my head, I was like saying, why does she take this role? Why does she take this role? Because it's not a big role at all. I mean, it's, you know, it's there's hardly ever big women roles in Scorsese films, except for like, you know, Lorraine Bracco and Goodfellas. Um, you know, there's probably one role that's a big role. Uh, but this is there's not a big role in this for her. But it's so powerful. There's a scene in a bank that'll just break you. That'll really just break you. Um, and I can't say enough about what that movie is. And just again, you know, Scorsese in the article he wrote with the New York Times about what he is looking at cinema is is the unexpected, the unexpected about the story, and that's what makes it epic. Is and that's what he's talking about, which is not in the the Marvel films, and, and quite honestly, they're not. Uh, there's you know there's like there's no risk in Marvel films, and there can't be risk in, like like in Marvel films. And 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 to me, I I would really wager that um, does Tony Stark have to die in Endgame? Does you know the characters have to die in Endgame? Do they have to if their contracts weren't up? You know what I'm saying? That's something that I don't know, and perhaps they wanted to kill some of them anyway, just to to give it something. But you know, Iron Man's not gone. Uh, maybe in ten years they'll reboot Iron Man. There'll be a different person to play Iron Man. There might be a different Tony Stark in ten years. Um, and I say that because you know I'm watching like the trailers today when I watch Knives Out, and I see, wow, there's another version of Little Women being made. And wow, there's another version of Emma being made. And I was like, those movies were made like 10 or 15 years ago. And they were really, really good then, like done then. And now we're seeing them again differently. I, I didn't want to see Little Women when I saw it, when I just heard about it. But the trailer looked interesting. The cast looked interesting. Um, you know, and I really was on the fence because I liked Greta Gerwig's work in Lady Bird, even though a lot of people didn't. Um, I liked it. Uh, just because I hadn't seen that story. I hadn't seen that coming-of-age story uh, told from a woman's point of view uh, in terms of the character and by, you know, like a screenwriter and director. Like, that, I think, was kind of like a trifecta on that that made it different enough for me to say, this was wow, this is new. You know, but I don't know about the last few versions of with women, uh, I do know the last version of Emma was directed by a woman, um, and it looks okay. It's got this woman. The actress is in it. She was in that movie, The Witch, from a few years ago. Who, the, the director who did um, the the Lighthouse that's out right now. But I still think, you know, uh, but that's the thing about these movies, like like Ford Ferrari. I mean, yes, it's a race car movie, and yes, we think we've seen race car movies, and we have seen race car movies, you know. But I don't think we've seen this race car movie. Um, and I love the fact that, you know, they didn't do CGI cars except for like a couple shots, is what Mangold said. You know, they did something that they built 
uh, the body, the exterior bodies of these older classic cars on these um, uh, on new cars, so they could control them more in terms of like because of the movie making and stuff like that. And uh, but and, but and they get them up to those speeds because you know like those cars now. I don't know if the owners like would allow you to push them up to those speeds of like what he's going two hundred and eighteen miles an hour in the in, in the actual Le Mans. And I don't think they would let, let that happen. But that's but the, the there's there's a there's something in that I guess not CG'd out. Like that's the thing that makes the movie epic. And if you're gonna make a movie, you gotta say I gotta make an epic story. And you know what makes an epic story? And there's a lot of that is in execution. You know, like Mango's talking about. They, they have this thing called um, the biscuit that they use for these car things that they the stunt team has been improving it year after year after year after year every time they get called up to do it, which is basically you can put the camera like in it to look at the actor from any point of view, from any point of view. You know, from you know, like three sixty, a three sixty kind of angle around the actor driving the car, and and the, and the car will be going at speed, so at hundred miles an hour, at hundred fifty miles an hour, at you know two hundred miles an hour, and the reason why they're able to do that is because the steering and the speed is decoupled from the car interior. There's someone on the roof who's driving, and that's like fucking fascinating to me. It's just like a filmmaker because it allows you to do things that you want to see in the production and in the that give you something and, and and you know in uh, a television show trying to do like a chase scene and a car scene you know they're not going to do that uh, they're going to do it all CG they're going to CG as much as, as you can and as much and, and even and CGing CGing exteriors in car scenes is is my biggest pet peeve I, just, I hate it I hate it I hate it I hate it the most because you see those backgrounds and they just don't look right and the lights not hitting them right and everything like that. And it's like the problem, you know, about CG is, um, you know, with the green screen stuff is that it's got to be perfect. It has to be perfect. And there's one thing that's not perfect. Then, at least for me, I go, oh, there it is. You're fucking doing that fake background shit again that I hate. I don't care what you do. I know that it's, it, I, I intrinsically feel that it's not real and I'm out of the story. Uh, and I'm thinking about in my head. I'm going, why? Why the fuck didn't they just shoot this on a process trailer and really do this? But uh, now that leads me into a, a different talk about television. I did watch uh, episodes of The Mandalorian and Watchmen, uh, and uh, trying to catch up on uh, Man of the High Castle. I'm only in the second season. Uh, Joe Wilson was telling me just the other day. Um, that Watchmen is going to sleep the Emmys. Um, now I've only watched up to episode five, and it's startling and it's amazing. And I, you know, really applaud what Damon Lindelof is doing. Even though some people have issues with him for, you know, like how he ended Lost. You know, write your own loss if you don't like his ending. I thought he did a really, you know, for what he did and what he wanted to do. I think you know they set out to do it, and I really like you know whatever all all, all the knocks against him. I think are unfair. Uh, I think that, you know, giving an opportunity to do something where he can control it top to bottom, like we did with The Leftovers and like we did with, like we did with Watchmen, he's able to, like, show what his real uh, storytelling, like, acumen is and his storytelling strengths. And they're on full blast on Watchmen. Just absolutely full blast. 
And there's things in that show that uh, I have to applaud. I mean, he's he's staying within what you can do the best about a television and not try to, like, jump into what, what movies can do uh, because television just, does, just, just won't do what movies can do. Um, in, a, in a lot of levels, you know, I'm not, there's no, there's no real knock about television that way, but it's just, I don't like it when people think that, especially they think that uh, TV shows are getting cinematic. They're not. And, and they ultimately can't be because of how they're produced. And more importantly, not how they're, how they're produced and the, the, the number of episodes you got to shoot and the fact that the directors don't have control over the storytelling, the final storytelling. And, you know, they don't have to. They're not supposed to. It's just the way television is. But that's the thing is that, you know, I was talking about these close-ups you get, that, you know, like in Knives Out or in, like, Ferrari earlier. Those close-ups mean something. When they go to the close-up in those movies, they mean something. They don't necessarily mean anything in television because the editing is done. There's still an overall thing for editing done for pacing, strictly pacing because they're worrying about people's attention span and they have to fit everything within that the episodic 55 45 to 55 minute like you know like like time block it's particularly notorious on television show that is like on broadcast or basic cable where the editing has is it's just it's 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 tough for me to watch because i'm just kind of i watch and be like i'm like well why'd you get that shot it's just not telling me anything about the story and if you stop and think about, you know, because like, I just directed something again. And you say to yourself all the time, what does this shot say? How does this shot make me feel? In terms of like what I want the audience to feel. How does the shot do that? That's not something that happens in television per se. I mean, it's massaged because it's this editing by committee, but it's not truly the the organic way the show's is shot. And the, and the director can't shoot it in a, in a way that would make sense like that because he doesn't get to edit it. And also, he doesn't, you know, he can't lock them into a way of shooting because there could be, an, an, like, another scene that has to be faster or something like that. So that's the big thing. But again, I think what Damon Lindelof is doing with Watchmen is, is, is awesome. And I also love the fact that he's being bold with it. Like, he's being bold as shit. Like, with the choices he's making in every episode, with the whole premise of when he's doing this, it's just such a bold choice. And even though he's doing a, a signature property from Warner Brothers, who has proven to not really understand how to do their properties that well, except for television. So, but here it is again. They took a Vertigo book and they just absolutely killed it with, you know, with, with like, with, like with Lindelof and what he's doing. Conversely, you have The Mandalorian, um, which I watched four episodes of it and was disappointed with every episode. Um, mainly because it's, 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 I can't tell how much, but a great deal of it is shot. I'd say at least 70% of it is shot on, um, it's, uh, it's green screen. Um, and there's just elements about it that the minute you see it, you're just like, oh God, just in that first episode when, you know, the Mandalorian guy played by Pedro Pascal, um, even though we never see his face and he's a very handsome actor and he's a very expressive actor. Um, he's just, you know, he's getting some bounty out in, in, in like the wastes and this, the stone cold, the cold 
chilling waste. And they're just walking across the uh, ice to his ship, and to some, you know, into they're getting in a speeder, and um, you know, it doesn't look cold. It doesn't feel cold. It doesn't feel cold. And was uh, the thing about Mandalorian is most disappointing is Firefly that was that Josh Whedon did on USA, I guess, fifteen years ago now. It's, this, it's the same quality as Firefly. And I don't understand that because in 15 years and with all the Disney money, you haven't really done anything better. Um, you, they're not surpassing that. They should be trying to surpass that, at least in story quality, and they're not. And in production value, and I don't know if they really are. Um, I mean, yes, it's exciting to see something from the Star Wars canon done like this, but I think the Star Wars canon is getting milked uh, inappropriately because... They're trying to curate the. They're trying to do. They're trying to be curators of it. There's no risk in it anymore. They won't take a risk in it anymore. It's the big reason why the Empire is the greatest one. Is that there's, like there's risk in how they're telling that story. Also, things that didn't make sense to me that in the Mandalorian. Uh, I guess everyone's hyped about you know like the guy the um, the baby Yoda, and he is actually cool, but I there's just an issue about that. Um, uh, you know, I, I, it's just, it, it seems weird that the b- baby Yoda is, is the one thing that people are remarking on. And it's like uh, a character that doesn't talk that's the size of a pet. It's just like in your head, you should be thinking about why is that what you're thinking about? I guess the biggest problem is because you don't see Pedro Pascal. You know, he has to wear the mask all the time. And I'm just kind of like, you should do what you did with Iron Man. Like, show me a shot inside his mask so I can see his face. Uh, you know, like, like you don't need to hide his face from the audience. Because it's like, you know, when he's in any situation, do we know if he's just, if he's scared? If he's not scared? Um, you know, when he's making choices about, to, like, is he going to save the, the, the Yoda baby or not? It's like, you don't know what is going on facially. Uh, and that's how we connect with people is their faces I mean that's why we look at people in the eyes you know it's like people would get mad at Miles Davis when he would play with, with like, like with his back to them because you don't get the connection you want with the artist and their message if you don't see their face and that was a huge problem for me also it's like there's that scene in there this is just, just quibbling for me I don't know why I'm quibbling about this because I shouldn't be just shit talking that much um but I just was disappointed. I just was like, you guys have all this money. You have all this time. You have the Disney brand. They're launching their service off of this. And you're not offering up something that is just like, wow. Because now I'm like, what else are you going to do? I mean, like, that's the thing that Netflix did. Well, like, when they launched to their saying, hey, we're not just movies. We're going to do original content. And they rolled out House of Cards. And the first episode of House of Cards just fucked everyone's head. Um... You know, there's a, there's a scene where they're like, he, the Mandalorian, he's collecting people in those, like, uh, carbonite things that Han Solo was put in. And I was kind of like, that's wrong. That's wrong. Because Boba Fett was uncomfortable about that choice to do that with Han Solo. He thought that Han Solo would get damaged and that he wouldn't get his money. So, and it was just, and, that, and Vader was kind of forcing him that him to take that because it was a way to do it. And it was a way to, um, uh, you know, like the carbon freezing was not for humans, not for for living beings. It was too dangerous. It just happened to save Solo. 
uh, or, or, or slowly didn't get killed in the freeze. And he even says that he, he might get killed in the freezing process. And he goes, he's no good to me dead, I think is what, you know, Boba Fett says. So, but, you know, under Favreau's thing, they're just, they're just using it like it's a jail cell. And I thought that was just, from like, off the rip, that just made me go... Ah, they're not doing this right, and that's like in the first ten minutes of the, of, the, of the first episode. So I was just disappointed with that, um, you know. But what's coming up to see that I want to see that's cool? Well, there's three films that I want to see uh, in December still that I know are coming out. I want to see uh, Queen and Slim. Everyone's asking me about that. Have I've seen that? I haven't seen it yet. Uh, I was going to see a screening. Um, that Lena Waithe was supposed to be at for the WGA, but I guess she didn't want to come do the Q&A, uh, I guess for if her schedule is permitting. So maybe she'll do that elsewhere, or I'll just go see it uh, in the theater, because I, I, I'm not even sure if they had that screening, or maybe I just missed it. Um, and then I want to see 1917, which is the new Sam Mendes film, which is apparently you know the most impressive war film. It's being touted as since Saving Private Ryan. You know, I don't like those kind of comparisons, uh, uh, you know, just mainly because Sin Private Ryan came out, like, like, like people didn't know how much it was gonna like, fucking kick, kick everyone's ass. Uh, I think, but there's, but the gimmick on nineteen seventeen could be difficult. Is that it's um, trying to do what they did like in um, in Birdman, where it's gonna feel like it's all single take. Um, but you know, it takes over. It takes place over several hours you know like it takes place like like over the, like longer than two hour period like Birdman made that work because it kind of fit within the constraints of what the two hours of the show but I think you know I think it's I think 1917 is like a it's at least a 24 it's at least a 12 hour period because there's night scenes and day scenes you know and you know I figure and then then the next day scene so you know, maybe it's six but starts you know whatever starts those guys get their mission at five in the afternoon and then they they're getting to where they need to be in the middle of the night and then, and then there's shit happening at five the next morning right when dawn happens but it looks fascinating and it looks wow like that's gonna be fucking cool you know and I and I always feel the night that uh, World War One is a film that was not, is a war that is not explored enough on screen um and I kind of hope they would do like like a Harlem Hellfighters movie, but um, I don't know if they will do that these days. I just we'll see if someone does that. Um, what else do I want to talk about? I don't even know. I guess you know part of the reason why we're do- I'm doing these battle episodes is because Hillary and I uh, were working on this web series, and and it took us out for like two weeks to record, and then you know the holidays. But you know the, the d- directing was interesting. I hadn't directed in a while. A long, long time. That's the thing I hate about. I hate about it. I can't do it enough. Um, and because it, it's so fascinating, it's so in. Uh, it's so enriching for me as an artist. You know, I mean, I just after I do it, um, I have more and more ideas that I want to write, and because I, I want to see them come alive, and I write them so I can bring them to life. You know, I mean, that's just rarely the case, but that's. That's the main reason why I write is to actually direct the stuff. Um, but it was interesting, you know. We had to do 14 pages in one day, and uh, it was two episodes of this web series. And you know, I had to. I was daunted at first because I was like, "How am I going to do this?" You know, it's 14 pages is so much. Yes, it's one location, uh, it's one room, one location, but it's still a lot, and it's two episodes, and you got to figure out how to like approach them differently, stylistically. And it's just, you know, but I was like, well, maybe I'll, I'll, I said to myself, I'd look at it like a two-act play. 
Um, and that's another thing about when you're shooting anything is like, what's the shooting strategy? How are you going to approach it as the filmmaker? How are you going to make edits to things? How are you going to do all these kind of things that the writer is not concerned with? Uh, is not trying to figure out and is and is and will get upset if you make changes or approach things differently. But I think you know again it's this thing that Mango was talking about is that um, who I like a lot and I feel like his Logan is top two or three of all comic book movies um, by far. Um, he's talking about you know there's always this thing that directors have to know the whole movie in their head and they and that what they get at the end is the whole movie in their head and it's not the case um and he's made this great point about like, you have to adapt to what the world is throwing at you you know and and, I, and look i'm someone who says yes you yeah you have to have the movie in your head. you have to know where you're going you have to know what the emotional journey is that's the movie that's in your head that you have to keep and that's but in keeping the that in your head you have to then think stronger about what every day is giving you it's one of the things I think is I'm going to talk with this woman about who we're going to interview uh, next about what doing a short is and what doing a feature is in a short you can envision the whole five minutes. You can make, you can ensure that you can get everything that you envision, and you probably won't because you won't have the money or uh, to get the resources in front of the camera and behind the camera to do do everything in your head, and you'll feel that, damn it, I didn't get all this. And that's a really interesting point. Uh, I was saying that. I, I can't remember saying that, but that's the thing that you have to you have to remember is that when you're making a movie you want to like go with what's there like I must have done three or four different versions of the with the, the blocking with, with this program called um, shot designer how we're going to stage it how it's all going to work why well, want the cameras to move here when they say these lines the actors going to move here he's going to sit down and do this and this and this and you know and that that's how I'm going to make them do this I must have did a bunch of those trying to figure out the best ways to do it with the least amount of shots. And, and even though I'm using two cameras, I still got to cover all this kind of page account in a single day. And how do I do that? So I got to map all this out. And then I go and I do the rehearsal. And, you know, I, and I did the rehearsal where I we went to the location and I, and I took meticulous, you know, like um, uh, floor plans of what the space was going to be like and then I was and I measured that off and then we got the rehearsal space I just I replicated the dimensions that we that we're going to shoot in and here's where the chairs are going to be and here's where the desk is going to be here's the window here's the door so so we could figure out the we could figure the blocking out ahead of time cuz I said to myself if we have to do any blocking rehearsal and figuring that stuff out uh, on the day that's just you'll probably that's that's probably costing us three shots to do that um, and then we could, you know, and obviously you have to rehearse in a way. You have to rehearse. You have to have to rehearse. And rehearse doesn't have to be like doing the read through, which is what we did, because you just talk with the actors and talk with and get a sense of who the character is, what they're planning to do, things like that. You don't. I mean, yes, you want to do that part where they're kind of feeling each other out, but maybe there's not time for that. 
But after I did that, I was like, well, I have to throw away, I have to throw away all the work that I did. I threw away all because, you know, the actors did different things. Like when they did different things, and then I saw things when they're like doing the rehearsal and behavior-wise that I was like, I didn't, you know, what I can't think of that. It, well, I'm on the on the computer or with a, with a, with a or drawing with an Apple pencil. Like, oh, the, act, the actor's going to do this line, or he's going to stand up here. You know, this is not not even in the script, but he's supposed to do that because he feels that. And that's the thing about you know the movie guys and everything like that is that you know you to like you have to embrace all of that messiness of and just the the chaos of what the other people want to do the collaborators want to do because that's what you're trying to capture you're trying to capture that realness and those guys are doing things that they make is they feel is the right thing for the character to do and then you're like okay so now then I just, so now that I just gotta watch I gotta watch and see what they do and where they walk and then adjust my shot list and my you know like this floor plan you know thing, the shot the shot design a diagram I had to redo that after seeing what they were gonna do and then I had to throw it out again because there was problems with the way the lighting was going to be done. And we wanted to light where we were told by the guy who runs the facility that the overhead lights in this waiting room um, could be swapped out. Um, and then we get there and he's, then we can't swap them out. And so then, you know, like all the, the quasar tubes we used for, to get the lighting that the way we wanted it. We couldn't use the, you know, we had to put those in the ceiling anyway, next to the, the to the other regular fluorescence, and then the you get out. We couldn't really hide the cables because we couldn't go into the ceiling, and it was just like, well, I can't get the shots that I in my head the way I even saw it, because I, you know that because that involves seeing the ceiling in some of the shots and things like that. And uh, I mean, you know, some of the stuff we were able to work around. But then I was just like, well, we get, we have to make it work. We just have to make it work. And you know, and, and while all this stuff is is failing, and they're still doing the lights, what they should have done the night before, still the day that we get there, and the clock is ticking. You know, Carl Seatness said, you know, just remember, he's like, I caught him up before I was shooting. He was like, just remember, bruh, you're already behind the minute you get on set. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you are. And it's just so I'm sitting there going, God damn it! Like, what is gonna, you know, like how, how are we gonna do this? You know, like I said, we had two cameras. These great made a cook set of cook primes. These pancros and this cook of uh, very tall zoom, and we couldn't get the zoom to work. Uh, not that the zoom didn't work. You know, it's just old lens. You know, it's the one Stan Kubrick used on like Barry Lyndon. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to be able to get it. Um, but. Uh, the team that we worked with, the younger camera team, they were such they're such young people. Um, they didn't know how to make the, the do the follow focus manually because they couldn't get the, the 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 electronic one to work. It wouldn't sync because of just a lot of other crazy stuff going on. And I was like, I was like, can't you take out like a tape measure and just like do it the way they used to do it? And they this and they was like no 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 and 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 they, they were like who is a tape measure, you know I was like just I was like how do you forget how movies are made, how do you forget how movies are made or don't know how movies are made, but so there was those kind of challenges. I still think we got something interesting, you know I'll have to talk with Hilliard. Uh, and we'll talk about it online. Like I guess when he's on here up up here next. Um, and we get to talk at the next interview, but it just was an interesting experience, you know, just to shoot something again and to be there and that and think about 
what you have to do, what changes you have to make, how you want to emphasize a scene, because you get different things from the actors. I mean, the actors in 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 the second one, they were, they were, they were, the actors in all the, in all of it was great. The actors in the second one, uh, just because of the just not because they were better, but the script was better. Uh, they gave so much. Yeah, you know, like you could just feel people ready to cry on set because of what was going on. Uh, you know, the and the writer was crying. He's on his own material, which is interesting. Um, but it was a great experience. I think everyone needs to try to get get that experience if they can. If they're writing something, they should be like for the screen. They need to produce something. You just get a sense of a lot of things about what you didn't expect. You know, there was a moment where we were like we were rehearsing something that gave me like a weird problem. I remember in rehearsal, like I didn't like the way something was happening. And then we were on the set and uh, we rehearsed it. And I was like, I thought the rehearsal well, maybe speak, we, like it's not working because is you know the dynamics are not exactly the way it is and it'll change once they're there on set and there's we have can see how the camera's really going to move and things like that but then i just realized i was like oh you know what we got two beats of dialogue we don't need so we have like we have so we have like you know like like three we had three exchanges uh or three separate lines of dialogue from you know like one two like different actors speaking three times um or a piece, whatever. And I was like, you know what? They're talking too much. Just cut all that out. Just cut all that out. Let's just see how it plays without it. I th- I think that'll work. Um, and then it turned out it did work, you know? And it was just like one of those things that I, I feel that, you know, I was gracious that the writer felt comfortable enough to let me do that just on the fly. Like, I didn't consult with him. I didn't consult with anybody. I just was like watching it unfold twice. And I was like, it's not working. And here's why it's not. Uh, it was a guess um, because, but you know that that's just part of institutional knowledge that you get from doing stuff and getting a sense of how people behave and what it is when you're the actors are moving and the camera's moving and there's all that kind of that chaos that you're trying to like corral that uh, you know and, and capture those those moments of of quicksilver energy of the emotional being as real as possible. You know, like like that's all you're trying to do when you're when you're directing. It's like is it's like is this the most honest moment? Did did we catch it on film? Like, and how do we get them to get there in each take? Because we're going to be doing different things and try to capture things at different angles. And that's the uh, that's the main part of your job is just to be able to get them to be as honest as possible every time. And a lot of times, the, and the honesty doesn't have to come from the dialogue. You know, it's like you know you you just hear me say this all the time. I'm not, I'm not one who says this. I just, I just know this from what other people, directors have said. It's the behavior. What you do, what kind of act, activity you do or your action is what, you know, like, but that is what you're trying to capture. And that's where the reality of, of what it is. And that's where you, you know, just want to have that kind of freedom to explore that. And not be tied down to what the script said, because you know, look, I'm a writer. I I'm, I'm not, I love writers, and I, and I know what it is. But I also know that there's a lot of writers who get upset when you, from the director who you brought in as a collaborator, and then the actors who brought in additional collaborators, have to make changes on what the, the, the what was written, you know. And the actor might not like that. I mean, the writer might not like that. 
but the writer's not there trying to make it feel alive and breathe alive and be as uh, you know just to be there and, 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 and make it as honest as possible and that's the thing that they you know you, you have to give up that control just for that moment as you know the camera's rolling and let the, the, the collaborators you hired the creative collaborators you hired the director the and the actors to set this up um, and make it go because ultimately it's not about like oh if I cut like three lines out of this script you know and I didn't ask you if I could do that um, it's it's more about it's, what's the final result you know like to me that's the ego talking the ego is what gets you in trouble all the time you know and it's, you just have to balance that ego um, you know and that's and that's the main thing that's the director's job because everything is pointing on him that's the one thing that was so difficult is that when the, the, there was a moment when we weren't shooting for like 40 minutes because we couldn't get the stuff with the, the second camera to work and I was like what's going on here like you know and I can't yell at anybody because no one's getting their full money and you don't you can't yell at anybody anyway it's not their fault but you're just like god damn it like this whole thing could like this whole thing could not work you know because we hadn't got one shot yet we got one shot trying to, trying to do a second setup and it's like half hour it was an hour you know we ready to go with one camera Just and I was like this could all like go to pieces right now absolutely right now and I was telling Harry I was like yeah man I think we have to cut the second episode because if we, if we can't get this shooting soon then it's just going to like be a domino effect of problems um, and it's like that's the pressure that is put on you when you're directing stuff because everyone's going to blame the director if the, if it doesn't turn out right. Everyone is. And if it turns out cool, the, the director like is going to get his props, but then everyone else is going to be fighting for their props too, which is which is, you know, which which is which is right, you know. It's not the director's movie uh, by far. There's too many other people involved just to make it work. But if it fails, it's the director's failure. And that's kind of like a weird kind of like balance you have to you have to you have to straddle, um, like when you're directing, particularly things like this. Not when you're doing this is doing television because you know they can solve stuff and the, the first AD and the DP and the DP can you know solve stuff that if the director messes up. It's you know if you don't make your day then you it doesn't mean that the episode's not going to cut together because they would have like made sure they got enough material and that person then is 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 not going to get you know brought back um and 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 everyone knows early on if they're not going to make their day on a, on a television set um but i don't know that's just the balance that i realize that you have to have you have to of, of what goes on when you're directing and then you had to take your take your writer hat off and throw it away and and except for when it's necessarily called for for we, we got to change script stuff because uh, you know someone's telling me one time that you know it's one of the things that producers hate and executives hate is that they're held hostage by the production process because they can't control any of it at that point and they can control everything else uh, except for production and they can control post and they can control pre but they can't control the production and it's that's where it gets you know crazy okay so that's it that's, that's enough for me to talk right now I appreciate everyone who has been listening to this show Screenwriters Rant Room will be back with the street nerdist Lisa Boakaja shout out to her and to heal your guest shout out to him I mean this is his show I'm just filling in as the um, guest 
MC at the moment. If you have any questions, please uh, send uh, the email to ScreenwritersRR or ScreenwritersRentRoom at Gmail. So that's screenwriters, uh, ScreenwritersRR at Gmail or ScreenwritersRentRoom at Gmail. Or you can hit us up on our website, ScreenwritersRR.com, ScreenwritersRR.com. And on the contact page, there's a way for us to be contacted. And you can hit us up with any questions that way. Uh, I'm going to shout out to uh, to Ryan Canty for becoming a new Patreon subscriber. Appreciate that very, very much, Ryan. And you'll be getting your uh, gift shortly in the mail. Uh, I think there's other people who, who were still owed gifts, too. Um, but there was just issues with fulfillment and stuff like that that we're working out. Even though it's been forever, we're still working that stuff out. Um... So then, you know, you can follow us on uh, Twitter and Instagram. You can follow me at uh, Unauthorized CBD on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow Hilliard at at Hilliard Guest uh, uh, at Hilliard Guest on Twitter and Instagram, or Screenwriters RR on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and then we have a Facebook page. I don't have any. Uh, I, I'm I'm really on Facebook, so uh, I, I'm not even sure what's on there. Um, but anyway, things are exciting for me right now. You know, I just signed with a new manager, which I'm super, super excited about. Um, and I have some interesting projects that are ready to go um, in the big top of the year. Exciting stuff, a film. You know, my big thing is a film because I just want to do one. Um, it is so exciting to what I'm working on. Um, but anyway, thank you for everyone for listening to these, and we will be back in a week with the regular format of the show. Um, have a good uh, December, everyone. I'ma say what I feel, and I promise to keep it real. Welcome to the Red Room. Well, you gotta be a rider Till your fears are diminishing The doubts are behind ya It's hard to grind And the business got me stressed In the rent room We let that shit up off our chest You know the street nerds Got no time for no caca Sass in class Yes, that's Mr. Bolakaja Never have to guess When you're listening to Hilliard He gon' bring more game Than a shark playing billiards It's all about the crap of screenwriting It's exciting when you turn an outline Into something enlightening Your pen and words Are like bullets in a gun Write what you feel Say what you want 